Hi, I'm Ben Field, and this is the Hillsong Film and TV Podcast. If you accept the fact that what you're writing is going to be crap, it's actually very freeing. And especially younger writers, I say, your first scripts are going to be horrible. It wasn't until I wrote my seventh spec script that it was any good. And I've written 10 pilots now, and I only figured out how to write them like three or four ago. You've got to get your material performed in front of people, in rooms with people, you know, even if you're putting it on the internet. you know, Get in rooms with people, do readings, get a little audience in there, see what they're reacting to. To me, good structure is this. Page one makes you want to read page two, and page two makes you want to read page three and do that 120 times in a row, and you've got a screenplay that people would read. Now, it also has to be compelling, but it's mostly about execution, and I, and I continue to say to people, if, if page one isn't good, it doesn't matter if your big thing happens on page 10 and you've got this great act break happening on page 29. You've got to execute it well. You've got to be able to sing well and then move on to the next thing. That was Dean Patali, showrunner and television writer who over the course of his lengthy career has seen him write some of television's hit shows, such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, That 70s Show, The Good Witch, and more. In this episode, we explore the practical side of writing, developing characters and sharpening your gift, not just in writing scripts, but across all areas of storytelling. This is an extended interview, so pick up your hot beverage, sit back and enjoy part one. Well, Gene, thanks for joining me. It's good to be here. Thanks for asking me. I'll go where anybody anybody wants to hear me talk. Pretty much, I'll show up. That's good. Thanks. Well, you have a place here. Yeah. Let's start off with your background. How did you get started in screenwriting? Uh, you know, I was actually a playwright uh, in the beginning. I started writing plays in college. I had done theater in high school. Started writing musicals in college and then kind of started a little theater company. This was in the days where I just kind of rent a theater and put on a show. And then uh, I got hired by a theater company in Seattle. I was writing for them, working as an actor as well. I wasn't much of an actor, but I was good enough to get hired by them. And then I wrote material for them as well. And then um, it's actually a Christian theater company. They fired me. Uh, we can go into that on some other podcast about our darkest <laughs> secrets. Uh, not, no no uh, immoral impropriety. It was more about I was kind of the guy who drags the elephant into the room to talk about the room. So I was kind of saying this art needs to be better and these relationships need to be better. Right. And then um, Hollywood had kind of been in the back of my mind, but I had already written three or four musical comedies, and so I was writing stuff that made people laugh, and I thought, maybe I can be a sitcom writer. Maybe I can go to Hollywood and use this skill and become a sitcom writer, and that was uh, 28 years ago. <laughs> did you think you were funny at the time? Is that why sitcom? Or did people tell you you were funny? Yeah, you know, I think comedy writers know if they're comedy writers. One of the things I struggle with is I, I meet people who say, I want to be a comedy writer, and they're just not funny. I mean, <laughs> I've never been like the class clown necessarily, but I always had a certain sense of humor, a certain wit, and could make the teachers laugh. And then um, I was a fan of comedy, a fan of sitcoms, a fan of musical theater. And so I started writing stuff, and the stuff that I thought was a joke actually made people laugh. So I thought, I guess I can do this. And so that's where I thought that skill of, 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 of sitcom writing. I've since become an hour-long writer, too, which we'll talk about. But that was the skill that I brought to Hollywood. As I'm writing lines, I'm writing dialogue that makes people laugh. And I knew it made them laugh because I was in a theater with people live making them laugh, which is one of the things I say to all young writers. You've got to get your material performed in front of people in rooms with people, you know, even if you're putting it on the internet, you know, get in rooms with people, do readings, get a little audience in there, see what they're reacting to, whether it's drama or comedy. So I had that uh, experience of already having done that a little bit. Do you remember the first time that you landed that first job that you knew you could probably tell other people about and they would know that show? Well, it was actually when I was a production assistant 
on a sh- the third show that starred Bob Newhart. It was after the Newhart show where he was a Vermont uh, uh, ran a hotel. And this was one where he was a comic book artist in the early 90s. And it was the writers who had just come off of running Cheers. So I had worked on a few other production assistant jobs. But this is the one that it's like, oh, my gosh, you're working for Bob Newhart and you're working with the Cheers writers. That one really kind of made my mom notice what I was doing, for example. <laughs> Somebody famous, finally, that you're working with. Yeah. I wasn't a writer for them. I was just an assistant. Right. But I learned so much uh, taking notes for them, copying scripts for these people who had written so much on Cheers, won Emmys for that, and then watching the run-throughs and going to the shoots every Friday night with an audience in there, again, in the room, listening to it happen. Yeah. Had you been a Christian at that point? I was, when you yeah. I came to Hollywood because... I, I wanted to see Christian characters on television. That really is what drove me there. And the first play that I wrote was because I wanted to hear laughter in the churches. I was really kind of like I, I, those tepid little laughs. You know, a pastor or somebody makes a joke, you get those tepid little laughs, you know. And I just, it, it bothered me. I wanted to hear real laughter. So that's what I tried to write was actual comedy that, that um, they were some biblical shows at the time. But that's kind of what drew me here was to see if I could, get Christian characters on TV. Again, just in a kind of, you know, we talk a lot about diversity in our culture. I just felt this was a part of our culture that wasn't being represented on TV. And I still go into rooms now and say, I kind of represent churchgoers here, and they're not all that you think they are. (laughs) There's political diversity, there's cultural diversity, and I think they should be represented on TV more. Do you feel like that's made some progress to be represented? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, it's actually, I will argue that there's, when I speak at churches and colleges, I actually think there are more Christian characters on TV than ever before. And they span everything from the Americans to The Good Wife, which is not anymore, but to The Simpsons, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Uh, there's, they're actually starting to realize that these characters might have a place on television, less so than in the Touched by an Angel kind of mm-hmm. middle-of-the-road thing. But, um, you know, on a show like The Americans, you have two communist spies, and then their daughter gets involved with a youth group that takes place in the 80s, and she starts struggling with, what do I do when I'm discovering mm-hmm. these things about my parents? So. What do you think it's been the cause of, I guess, Christian characters yeah. being on the fringe? Yeah. It's because most Hollywood executives don't know very many people of faith. Uh, they're not anti-faith necessarily. There's a conspiracy keeping this right. point of view out. It's simply been most people in Hollywood program for their friends and for themselves, the kind of shows they want to see on TV. And they just don't know a lot about um, people of faith, especially, again, the broader spectrum of that. Um, there's also – there is a perception that people of faith are this monolithic group that protest and are mostly angry about things, and so they, there's a little wariness of programming for them. It's breaking through a little bit. I'm getting into meetings now where they say, how do we bring in this audience? Partially, you know, again, wanting some diversity. Uh, they see there might be money for it. And also, as television becomes much more broadcasting, you know, it used to be you had to have a show that 30 million Americans, 40 million Americans, I know this is an international show, but for the, generally Hollywood looks at first America and then yeah. the rest of the world. Um, um, can can we program for them? Well, now you can have shows that only attract 3 million, 2 million, 1 million people. So there's a little more narrow casting going on. And so Hollywood is realizing maybe we could program for that section. Netflix, you know, is trying to get everybody. They want everybody from the 80-year-olds who watch TV to the 3-year-olds and younger. And so they're realizing they want to get a few shows on so that somebody uh, will will buy Netflix just based on that. Yeah. Looking at your IMDb page, actually, right now, <laughs> and I looked at it before, but um, you obviously you've done a wealth of writing and producing as well. But some yeah. of the titles in here, like Buffy, 
mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably very popular for the demographic that listens to yes. this podcast. Tell me about that coming into a show like that. Yeah, that and you know that's that's the credit that most people um, know me for. Seventy Show as well. I was on Seventy Show for a longer period of time, but Buffy was actually uh, before Seventy Show. Um, yeah, Buffy was a great experience. We, I had a writing partner at the time. We had just come off of a sitcom where we had been staff writers, low-level staff writers, and Joss was putting Joss Whedon was putting together a staff of sitcom writers and hour-long writers because he had been both, and he wanted to kind of create this different style. It's weird looking back. This is 20 years ago now. There really was nothing like it. Of course, the supernaturalness of it, but the, the banter, the, 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 the dialogue that was on was really fresh and different. And knew, and he wanted comedy writers, and he um, had read a script that Rob and I had written for a show called The Adventures of Pete and Pete, which anybody in their late 30s, early 40s will know from Nickelodeon, um, another really dialogue-driven cult show that would be a lot, should be a lot bigger uh, um, even now, but people who know it really love it. And there's a little bit of DNA connection between Buffy and Pete and Pete, but he read that script and liked our style of dialogue, put us on that show. you got to remember... When it was first announced, it was not looked at as a hot show, and we did 13 episodes before we even went on the air. Uh, we got we got staffed late. We came on late. Our, our even our agent went. I don't know if you want to work on this show, but you know they they're interested in you. And it was really fun. It was the early days of the internet when it finally came on. We had this small chat room of about 11 people that were giving us their thoughts on it, and uh, it was really fun to be a part of. But I didn't realize the first season was just like I don't know if this is going to work. And then I got on and suddenly became this thing, um, never hugely, hugely popular. We have to remember that at the time, you know, we got about four or five million viewers, which was the third highest rated show on the WB behind Seventh Heaven and behind Dawson's Creek. But it was really fun to be a part of and watch it grow over the years. At, Rob and I were on for two seasons, and then we kind of wanted to leave. It was kind of a really volatile place. There was a lot of staff changes and just a lot of... Um, just wasn't the most fun place to be for us after the first season. We had a standing offer to write another script if we wanted to, but then we got on 70s shows soon after that. Mm. With shows like that, being a person of faith and involved in that, was that did that come to much attention to the Christian kind of population that somebody like yourself would be working on such a kind of supernatural type program? Yes, um, and I kind of get it from both sides. I you know when I'm in the writers' rooms and. In meetings, I, I'm pretty vocal about my faith, and they look at—they just don't understand this Christian who wants to work on these shows. And then the church looks at me really suspiciously. Some people in the church look at me really suspiciously, less so now than it used to, but it still is there a little bit because now there's a different understanding of uh, Hollywood as a mission field. I—I—I I, I, I don't disagree with that statement, but I always kind of want to qualify that. Um, but that Christians need to be present on this playing field um, within the culture, helping to. To change things, I look. I, I actually had a more difficult time as a Christian working on that '70s show because of the behavior of the characters. Buffy is a fantasy world. You know, werewolves and vampires don't exist. It was designed as a show to almost be a parable, using high school as the most horrifying place Joss ever was, and these stories about fitting in and finding your calling, and actually a real clear good versus evil. But on '70s show, we had. You know, that 70s show was about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I'm very much in favor of two of those three things within their <laughs> proper usage. But it was the people, though funny, were actually mean to each other. So I would try to pitch stories that weren't as mean to each other and do episodes that were more about community and family and even forgiveness. Um, and that's what I tried to do as a person of faith in those rooms. 
And again, that kind of diversity, it's like, well, here's a different way that people might treat people. So that's what I would try to do on those shows. But yeah, it's still, there's a lot more writers of faith now. When I started out, there, there were a few, but um, there, there's a lot more now. And it's kind of like, you know, being a little more vocal, mixing it up mm -hmm. and kind of saying there's a different viewpoint here. Maybe there's a different way to tell this story, and maybe we can get different kinds of characters on the air yeah. too. So you see what you do somewhat as a responsibility to help shape the culture to yeah. the viewers. Yeah, again, I came here with that desire to get Christian characters on TV. I've had almost zero effect of that. Now, on The 70s Show, we actually got a youth pastor, a 70s youth pastor in, and we had a few episodes that took place in church that I wrote and directing the, directing the church play and that the characters had a fascinating conversation about the existence of God. They happened to be high while they were doing it, but there was actually some good theological truth in there. Um, yeah, it, it's, um, I, I haven't been able to do what I wanted yet, but I do see it as um, a privilege, a uh, certain responsibility, um, which I think all of us as people of faith are supposed to have of, in terms of going out in the culture. But um, yeah, I, 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 I wish I wasn't the lone voice in the room, and now I'm starting to become, you know, there's more of us down here. But yeah, I take that responsibility pretty seriously. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a series, Netflix series, 13 Reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I found that to be a remarkable... Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I know a lot right. about it. Yeah. Well, it, it brought to the surface conversations, that yeah. healthy conversations yeah. through this narrative. Yeah. Sadly, though, um, a result of it resulted in copycat suicides, yeah. and it, and it yeah. took people to an edge where mm -hmm. potentially people would say, you know, glorified suicide as right. an easy way out if life's getting too much. Where do you find yourself in that in terms of, like, your passions for writing, yeah. understanding that you can shape a whole generation through, through this content? You know, um, there was a study out when I was on that 70s show that said that people who watched that 70s show and other shows were more likely than average to be sexually active and use drugs. They never kind of figured out, is it people who are already having sex and using drugs watching that 70s show, or was it actually contributing to it? And the Parents Television Council, which I've never been a huge fan of, but they put out a, a study that said that 70s not a study, but they declared that 70s show one of the worst three shows on television in terms of content. Well, I argue as a Christian that if I hadn't have been there, we would have been number one for sure, right? Because right. I was kind of fighting against that. I actually take that very seriously, and I, I can't speak to 13 Reasons enough because I haven't seen it, but I the whole copycat thing, every show I've ever worked on, like preschool shows and behavior with kids running through traffic and this kind of thing, I, 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 I'm not one who thinks we have to push the envelope. Um, I, I get that reasoning, but, you know, I, I want to, you know, art is supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? So I think of that a lot when I'm doing, when I'm doing my writing. Um, if it's supposed to be a happy ending show, I'll still kind of push it and kind of show that, you know, it's not always a straight line through there. Um, I, yeah, I struggle with what are we glorifying? The 70s show made sex and drugs look pretty fun in, in not the best context. So I was always trying to steer that a little bit differently. Um, and even on the last show, the, the, the show that I just ran, Goodwitch, which is on Hallmark now in, 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 in May of, of 2018, um, I was trying to steer even those kind of characters a little away from just the idea that the only value a woman has is in whether or not a man loves her and wants to be with her. I was just trying to create some different things of self-worth and forgiveness. I've never worked on a show that dealt in those kind of darker things, well, other than Buffy, but like things like suicide or vengeance or revenge and stuff like that. So I do take it seriously. Um, yeah, and I think most writers do, but again, I'm looking at it from a, 
Christian worldview thinking, how can I how can I elevate things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control? Mm. And again, my characters tend to be characters who will offer a little extra grace to somebody or seek out forgiveness or seek out reconciliation and be a little bit less judgmental and maybe combining justice and mercy rather than just justice, which is what most characters seem to go for. Mm -hmm. So that's where I try to get into the copycat. So try to promote good things and get people to copycat that kind of behavior. Yeah. What's um? That's really idealistic. What I just said, by the no, way. No, of course. But it is the it is the, the core of what I'm trying yeah. to do. Well, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what has become the Christian industry, and this is probably more in film, yeah. you know, than it is in television today. Yeah. But um, it's kind of hit this market now. Yeah. This this audience that's built into these, and it seems to be a formula to do that. What's your what's your thoughts on that in terms of influencing? you know, whole generation through culture and media. But now we've created this kind of subculture of yeah. these Christian films. I don't mind subcultural art. I will argue that nearly every um, subcultural group in the last 30, 40, 50 years, uh, homosexual writers, African-American writers, and again, we're talking from the American cultural mm-hmm. point of view, and feminist writers, they all started out doing subcultural art, most of them in theater. Tony Kushner wrote Angels in America and eventually becomes such a big hit that he's writing Lincoln and other, and other movies. Wendy Wasserstein, uh, Eve Ensler, who wrote The Vagina Monologues, and August Wilson wrote 10 plays uh, exemplifying the African-American experience over 10 decades. Um, they were just representing themselves for their own audience. I actually don't think there's anything wrong with preaching to the choir as long as the choir sings better after you've preached them, right? But I think that the quality of our art has to be better. And my problem with a lot of movies that are made for this subculture is that they're too simplistic. And theologically, they, it, it's not the artistic quality that bothers me. It's the theology that bothers me. Too many of them say, with God, all things are perfect. And I'm much more interested in the grittiness of something like, you know, Dead Man Walking, which is essentially, it's, it's a, you know, a faith-based film. Or a, a movie like Lars and the Real Girl, which is about a guy having a relationship with a sex doll, which has no language in it, no nudity, and should be shown at every churches and promotes literally the line, what would Jesus do, is in that story. And it's, it's about a community coming together and helping this guy heal. Um, things like Silence that were recently, uh, Hacksaw Ridge, the Mel Gibson movie. You know, these are the kind of movies that I'd rather see the church doing. Look, I, I think there's value there. I, I don't think we should look at them as they're going to change the culture. They are comfort food for uh, a lot of the movies being made for the faith audience are comfort food for the faith audience. That's okay. Uh, a lot of romantic comedies are comfort food for people who want to see romantic comedies. Yeah. I'm okay with that. I think that um, we should just uh, – it, it kind of bothers me that we just kind of tack faith base on here. They, you know, the same marketing rules for faith-based films are the same ones that are used in pornography, and I'm serious. You come up with the right title and the right cover, and you know how many people are going to come see that movie. And I just – I'd like to raise the bar in terms of quality. It's inching up. It's inching up a little yeah. bit. But uh, there's a lot of just um, quick and cheap and done and that kind of – that kind of bothered me. I, again, I think if if we want to write for the subculture, that's okay. Just understand that we're not really reaching anybody than the, than the subculture. But again, it's not necessarily anything wrong with that. What I'm intrigued about is, could we do a kind of, could we do a TV show for the faith audience? Um, that's essentially not just for them, but might find other people. Because we haven't had that test case yet. There's been shows like 
Seventh Heaven, Touched by an Angel, but none of those were really designed for that audience. And is there a show that might be about, might take place at a church or might be about a Christian family or, or somebody who's utilizing their faith? Just haven't had that test yet. I'm trying. I'm out there trying, but uh, yeah. Being in that writer's room, is it yeah. easier or is it harder to collaborate? And talk, talk to me about that collaboration yeah. process. You know, it's a different skill. And um, I often say television writing is more, is more a craft than an art. Um, that 70s show, for example, we had 12 writers in the room most of the time. We would uh, break stories together. Breaking is coming up with ideas. You know, someone would say, I mean, there was one episode I said, you know, my, my dad went to an auction and got drunk and bought a canoe. And when he came home, he got mad at us because we didn't want the canoe. <laughs> so that became a story that we did. And it went from there about, you know, Kelso deciding he wanted to see how fast the canoe could go. And eventually he took it up the side of a mountain and wanted to ride the canoe down the mountain. It was a stupid little story. but that So that came from the 12 of us sitting around saying, well, all right, so if they had a canoe, what would they do with it? Well, they'd put it behind a car and then... We melded that with a story about, I think Donna was looking for a wedding dress, and we figured, well, maybe there's a way we could get the canoe to ruin the wedding dress or rip the wedding dress or something. And so that was, you know, we just kind of talked for a couple hours about what if, what if, what if, and everybody's pitching things. And then somebody goes off and writes an outline, and then they bring the outline back, and we would all give notes to that. And then they'd go and write the script, and they'd bring the script back, and we'd all kind of try to punch it up. And then we would go to a read-through on Monday morning of show week, and the cast would read the script in front of us. And then we would sit around for the rest of the day trying to make it funnier, maybe saying, oh, we don't have enough for Red to do here. So everybody's pitching different jokes. So in that show, a lot of—so I watch so many show now, and a lot of jokes that I wrote are in other people's scripts. And there are some scripts that have my name on it that I hardly anything is left of my own. Um, it's fun, but it can also be tiring. You're in the room with people for 12 to 16 hours a day, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of pressure because the clock is always ticking. You know, we have a show. The audience is coming Friday night at 7 o'clock, and we needed the script, and we need it to be as funny as it can be. We also want to go home and be with our family. Um, so it's, it's the story breaking that is generally the most um, collaborative because we will spend, on an hour-long show that I just ran, we would spend two or three days breaking the story, um, you know, just eight or nine hours a day. And then that's just to get to the beat sheet. And then somebody would write a beat sheet, and then we'd give more notes on another day, and then they'd write an outline, and we'd spend another full day. So by the time the script is written, we have spent probably four or five, hour, four or five days, 30 to 40 hours, helping to break and shape that story before they actually go off and write the script. Um, you have to, you know, everybody who wants to be a television writer at the top of your resume, it needs to say plays well with others because it's just about being in that room, coming up with ideas. It's a different skill than, than sitting down and putting words on the page. And you have to be able to do both in order to get the jobs. You have to come up, you have to be able to write a really good script. But in order to keep the jobs, you have to be good in the room. You have to be able to contribute, come up with ideas, do a lot of what ifs, not be somebody who just always is tearing down things. Yeah. And by the way, people can do this right now with their friends. I really think story breaking should be done with three or four people in the room. You get one person, you assign, if it's you as the writer, assign yourself to be the showrunner. You're the one who's going to say, I like that idea. I want to go down that path. I don't like that idea. Um, but you sit around for three or four hours and say, what's the shape of the story? You get a whiteboard, something, sit in front of mm -hmm. a room and um, get everybody to contribute ideas. You, but, you know, you need one person in the room who is the conductor, who's the visionary, who says, this is the path we're going down. And that's my job as a showrunner, because a showrunner, executive producer, is, all, is also the head writer. 
So my job would be to say on Goodwitch, for example, I want to do a story about um, two of the characters trying to come up with the perfect uh, best man and, and maid of honor speech at a wedding. So where does that start? And they start to become really competitive and they try to get a sneak peek at each other. It's like, and somebody might say, oh, we could do a story where they decide they want to do a big dance number. And I'm going, no, I don't want there to be a dance number. I want it to be a smaller story. Okay, so, and we only, and let's try to bring this character into it. Let's bring this third character in to shake things up. Oh, and he could like maybe try to go in and write jokes himself. No, I don't want him involved. It's like the one person has to keep track of and keep the walls on the story. It's very fun when it comes together. It can also be excruciating when you can't think of, you know, different options. What happens is you, you make a lot of U-turns. You go down a road for 15 minutes, a story idea, and realize that's just not the way to tell the story. Let's go back to what we like. And the other thing you do is you end up breaking stories, what I say, from the inside out. You're going, um, uh, if I come up with a story idea and go, oh, it'll be really... Like, you know, we wrote an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where one of the characters, Oz, is revealed to be a werewolf. And we thought... Uh, and it was also the episode where he's going to kiss Willow for the first time. And we thought, oh, well, if we do this story, let's do a scene where Oz turns into a werewolf in front of Willow. And we wrote that up as the fourth act break. A lot of people think you break acts, you break stories from the beginning to the end. Our story is, here's the broadest story. Let's make Oz a werewolf right there. You know, have him turn into a werewolf with Willow in the act four. And then act five will be a chase. And then we thought, well, if, if that's going to happen, let's let the audience know that he's a werewolf so that when he starts acting weird, they can get in on that tension of, oh, no, he's turning into a werewolf. So then we made that the third act break. We're kind of going backwards and then realize, well, let's tell the audience there's a werewolf in the teaser. So we put the teaser, you know, there's a werewolf on the loose. And, well, if, if there's a werewolf on the loose, let's make him watching Xander and Cordelia who are going out. So then it kind of formulates itself. And then we sort of look oh, what are the stories we need? Oz knows he's a werewolf. He tries to figure out how he was a werewolf, and then we need a little more tension. Hey, what if there's a werewolf hunter on the loose, and he catches Buffy in a net by accident? So then our first act break became Buffy is in a net, and we don't know why she's there, and the top of act two is the werewolf hunter is revealed. So you see how it yeah. kind of becomes inside out, back to, it's like, what are the good scenes, and then how are we going to tack them all together? Yeah, that's amazing. When you are in that phase of writing, can you talk to the, the disciplines, yeah. um, the demands, yeah. and do you ever get writer's block? Yeah, I, I said to somebody recently, um, you're not allowed to get writer's block when you're a TV writer. You just have to push through it, which, by the way, is great advice for any writer. It's like if you just force yourself to have a deadline. A friend of mine spends every morning he sets an hour timer and just writes for an hour. He's got other things to do. He's got a different job, but it's like I'm going to fill up as much time as I can in an hour. Television, the clock is always ticking too much, so you don't really get to have writer's block. And that's one of the reasons I knew I was a TV writer, by the way. I'd read a few books about TV writing and just realized, oh, you have to write so much and so fast. As the showrunner on Goodwitch in the past two seasons, past 18 months, I've written 1,500 pages, all of which got produced because I ended up having to rewrite everything. And it was just like, I just need to get 65 pages to the production office by Monday. <laughs> And I don't even have a story yet, and it's Thursday, and I had to get something to them. Um, I, I learned early on that um, if, if you accept the fact that what you're writing is going to be crap, it's actually very freeing. And especially younger writers, I say, your first scripts are going to be horrible. It wasn't until I wrote my seventh spec script that it was any good. And I've written ten pilots now, and I only figured out how to write them like three or four ago. And so young writers, I say... You just got to write that thousand pages, you know, until you've written those thousand pages. 
I'm not saying don't show it to anybody, but just don't expect it to be any good. And if you don't expect it to be any good, it's so freeing because you can just kind of vomit out the pages and know that you're getting a little bit better. You know, Malcolm Gladwell has, has this 10,000 hours thing. I have my 10,000 page script thing. And for me, it was it was true. It took me all these story breaking and, and just get the pages out to get it kind of right. Um, so that's the kind of discipline that comes. And I think you can train that early. And if you don't have that discipline, you can't really call yourself a writer. I'm not somebody who says you have to write every day. I'm not even somebody who says it has to be a passion. Um, this was a skill that I had, mm. uh, and I followed it. And remember, I'd rather be a playwright than a TV writer. So TV writing was kind of my fallback. I eventually want to become a playwright again just because I like the way you can tell stories there. But, um, yeah, it is a discipline, and television teaches you that discipline because I've, over my career now, I think I've been a part of breaking at least six or 700 stories because on that 70 show, I was on that show for 175 episodes. Every show had two or three stories going on. Good Witch, we did 40 episodes or, or 24 episodes. Each of those had two or three different stories. Buffy, different things. All you can do is just keep doing it. And, and again, if you accept that your first scripts are not going to be very good um, and then go to the next one. And by the way, if you can get in the rooms and help people break their stories too, that's why you know get in, make up your own writers' rooms, help e- writers' groups, help each other with your scripts. Uh, it's what the Inklings did. It's what Lewis and Tolkien did. They would read their stuff to each other, give people um, suggestions. Then you've helped break ten stories before you come back to your own. Start to realize, oh, this is what's missing, and that's the other thing that television writers sort of have that are different with, from screen screenwriters. I. I've only written one or two screenplays. I've written some two-hour episodes of Good Witch. It's a different part of your brain to think story and scenes and the necessity of scenes. Television is – all writing is about is this scene necessary and how is the story advanced from the beginning of the scene to the end of the scene. But television is even more so, I think, is this scene necessary because you have so little time to tell stories and to tell longer stories and you're looking at bigger arcs. So television writers learn to go – Look, that scene might be fun because you got a chicken jumping around in the room, but does it actually advance the plot? Actually, an episode with a chicken jumping around the room would be a really good episode. <laughs> Never done that, but uh, now I will. Um, but that's what I think happens with TV writing and the discipline of, and you just start to learn, oh, this is how the story can be different. Uh, for comedy writing, it's all about why is this scene going to be funny? And that was something on that 70s show we really tried to zero in. And we weren't always successful. But it's like, do you have two characters who want the same thing? Do you have two characters who are complaining about something? You know, every, every time I'm reading a script or hearing a story that's a, a sitcom, a half-hour episode, or, or a two-hour or a film, why is that scene going to be funny? Why, how are these two characters in the same room going to bring conflict, bring different points of view, bring different wants into the scene? And that's what you start to learn after you've done hundreds and hundreds of stories. So my advice to everybody is do hundreds and hundreds of stories, and you're just going to get better. By the way, or you're going to figure out that you don't have that skill, which is, again, what I learned I talked about earlier. I knew I could write stuff that was making people laugh. And I had that knowledge before I even came to Hollywood, um, which is, again, some of my advice is find out what you're good at where you are. You'll hear different advice about do you need to come to Hollywood. Well, Eventually, if you want to work within this culture, because this is where most of the jobs are given out, even though there's production being done, and, and other countries have their central hubs of production. Yeah. But uh, even though I've been working in Canada a lot, and I almost ended up working in Georgia at one point, we're still writing things here. So, But you can find out if you're good at it 
in other places. Well, that was the end of part one. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts and you can also stay up to date with the team via social media at Hillsong Film TV. Well, don't go anywhere. You can listen to part two of this interview with Dean Patali right here on the Hillsong Film and TV podcast.